One thing I recognized early, early on is your network is your net worth. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so excited to have my next guest here. We have Tracy Holland here, who is executive chairman and co-founder at Hatch Beauty, which is a brand incubator, and we will get into that in a few minutes. But Tracy is also a member of YPO, and we have met each other through the great YPO women's group that's out there. Woohoo! The women of YPO. And uh, (laughs) anyway, I'm very excited to be interviewing her today and having her share a little bit about her story. But just a quick uh, bio on Tracy. So as I mentioned, she's the founder and executive chairman, and she's an entrepreneur with a very big global track record of incubating and launching brands. And she's dedicated her career to creating new brands and success stories, especially for women entrepreneurs. After holding many executive positions at a lot of big name companies, she co-founded Hatch Beauty uh, to really incubate these brands in 2009. And she has since led highly successful development strategies and launches for many popular brands, which I know she'll get into. She was also awarded the 2019 Fashion and Beauty Award for Beauty Service Provider of the Year. And she was an EY Entrepreneur of the year in 2017 in LA area. Is it yeah, technically? In yeah. LA. yeah. So I was the same year in San Francisco. I can't believe that. Yeah. And uh, pretty, pretty wild. And she's also and elected to the Committee of 200, an organization of the most successful women business leaders globally. And now Tracy is taking on the podcast world and with her soon to be podcast from Potential to Powerhouse. Very excited launching this year. So welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, totally. I'm very excited that you are here. So first of all, talk to us, what is a brand incubator? I know, right? It's so (laughs) funny because now it's in the food space, it's much more prevalent to be incubation focused. And Trader Joe's is a great example of a really interesting incubator, right? Totally. Of products and, and foods. And we've appreciated that for 20 years as consumers. But You know, what I saw in beauty a decade ago was the fact that there were lots of consumer brands that were prevalent, but there was really not a place for retailers to go and sit at the table in the beginning iterative stages of developing a brand for their core customer. And these retailers have loyalty cards. And Mm -hmm. so they know their customer and they understand their customer, but they didn't have any place to go to kind of sit and say at the at the lab stage where they're in development to say, here's our customer opportunity. Help us really iterate for this very niche space. And at that time, but this is really pre-Facebook and pre-Instagram. So we we happen to think about how do we take what we know in the, the LA, we live in LA and the celebrity world of influencers. And at that time, Elle magazine and Cosmo and Vogue and all of these runways, the fashion runways in New York and Paris, how do we take that ethos and bring that into a retail setting and create a a brand with a retailer that feels like an authentic third-party brand that may be quasi-exclusive to that retailer where they put this in the best space and location in their store Mm -hmm. and they promote it as if it's a third-party brand. When really behind the scenes is kind of it's definitely not private label. It's definitely not a control brand. It's a it's an independent brand. We own it. 
but the retailer really gets to collaborate in the development. Interesting. So what's the difference between launching a brand and maybe incubating a brand like what you're talking about? I would say the only real difference is that initially a decade ago, the retailer would underwrite the P&L mm-hmm. by giving us a forecast and a commitment on a PO for a certain number of units, for a certain space and location in the store with certain signage and a certain kind of understanding handshake that we wouldn't take that brand to their direct competitor. Interesting. So it's typically com- coming from the retailer. It's the need for the opportunity for the, the category is definitely was retailer driven. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the collaborative nature of co-creating a brand with a retailer at that time, especially, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, you have the large Unilevers and you have the P&Gs and you have the L'Oreal's and you have the Lauders. At that time, you know, when we first started this work, there was really no one to sit and collaboratively co-create a brand. That How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long Term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. 
I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. would also think through all of the fast to market aspects of what it takes to launch a brand. Hmm. So because we had our own laboratory, we had our own manufacturing facility, we were really boots on the ground and we could fly the airplane and fix it at the same time. Interesting. And so we could get out to market in nine months on a concept that we had thought of nine months earlier, do surveying, do customer feedback, do creative, do packaging, do design, formulating compatibility, stability, and then run a marketing plan that would then launch it at the retailer level on an exclusive basis, on an end cap with all the bells and whistles that a third-party brand would have. But at the beginning, we didn't have any money. right? So we had no investor. And you know how much money it takes to launch a brand, right? So you were typically, so just so I understand, so you're raising money for Hatch Beauty. This is an idea. So, so you're from a retailer. It's often, the idea is often coming from them. They're guaranteeing some kind of space in the stores, but you're going out and raising your own funding. I didn't need to, because what I would do is take the purchase order as well as the purchase commitment for the first year of forecast. Mm-hmm. And I would turn around to my vendors and say, I need 120-day terms. And I would turn around to my bank and say, I'm going to be forecasting a $10 million plan. And here's my plan, how many SKUs and how much I'm going to need in terms of a revolver. And here's my purchase order. So I need you to factor this or finance it for me. And so I didn't raise, I think we got to $75 million in revenue before we started even thinking about Wow, that's amazing. And in some cases, you would also take these brands then out to other retailers, right? Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. It's very, very cool. So can you share some of the brands that you've done? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's been such a privilege because you know what's so strange, and I know you understand this because I just read your book and it was blowing my mind because actually some of the pain points that you've been through feel so familiar and whether you're in beverage or in beauty or in, I'm guessing in, in gardening or in any kind of category, right? What you don't realize is you don't know what you don't know until you get so far in that you think I really need to, I'm excited because if I can just get this big key account, then I'm going to be able to finance my growth to the next stage. And I'm going to get, get where I need to be. So we were really lucky in 2010 Trader Joe's was one of our first key accounts. And so if you use their lemon hand soap or um, their botanical hand soaps or whatever it may be, we were one of the first iterative, creative, and and kind of incubation partners in the in the HABA category mm-hmm. to Trader Joe's. I know that product. It's good, it's a good product. Yeah. Yeah. That's I awesome. mean, and Trader Joe's had such an innovative perspective on all the categories that they do because they're such innovation experts. But what what their focus was a decade ago was obviously food. So we came in and said, hey, we can do this for you in the beauty space. And I think we've established a deep and great partnership there in which we've, you know, helped uh, grow that business. And that's been a huge partner of ours. 
So back in 2010, that was our first partner. Our second partner was CVS. And that relationship started with Selma Hayek's brand of Nuance. And we co-created that brand with them and with, with Selma. And there were so many learning lessons from that business relationship. And, you know, in hindsight, I, I wish I could have gone back to my 10-year-old te- 10, 10 years ago and talked to my younger self and said, here are the things you should know. Be careful. Yeah, do this. Don't, don't totally. do that. But um, some of the brands that we have now, um, Nature Well is probably our biggest brand. Nature Well is started off as a topical brand um, and then has moved into ingestibles. So about two years ago, we started a wellness and ingestible division. So we also do teas and tinctures and supplements and powders, everything that kind of helps women and men optimize their their regimen from the inside out. That's awesome. So. NatureWell is probably well, the most well-known. We have Orlando Pita Hair Care. We have Found, which is a naturally derived skin and body and color brand. But then we just started Found Active. We're launching with Kate Upton. In the next week, you'll see it launching on direct-to-consumer. And then we'll be launching at retail. And we have other smaller brands, but I would say that's the bulk of our income. That's very, very cool. Now, when you are working with a celebrity, are they coming to you or are you typically going to them and saying, hey, we've got this idea and we want somebody to partner with us on this? You know, in the beginning, I would say we would have to knock on a lot of doors. And in the very beginning, I think Salma Hayek was truly one of the first. Nuance Salma Hayek in 2011, we won Mass Brand of the Year for WWD. Tom Ford, I think, won for prestige that year, that really put us on the map for co-creating a celebrity-driven brand because really no one had ever done that at that time. And we looked at that opportunity with Salma and said, how do we build this business relationship with her and with CVS? And I think that learning, as I mentioned, was a massive one in so many ways. That was a, a good learning ground for us. But I would say today, you know, we we meet with celebrities frequently. I think that's only one part of the component of what makes a brand successful. It really has to authentically resonate and come from the person who's involved as our partner and founder. It can't just be something Hatch Beauty invents and then kind of slaps a person's name on. It needs to really be incubated truly with that celebrity's core and authentic passion. Yeah. And they have to be in the kitchen with us. Yeah. No, I totally I totally see that and and agree. So prior to living in this world, what was your background? It's so funny. You know, when I I grew up as I think an entrepreneur my whole childhood, like I remember my first coming to my dad and saying I have this idea to create a store and the store is going to carry all these various products and I kind of imagined a store where you could buy food and all these other things. And that's when I was like probably nine or 10 and I did the retail schematic and I had kind of done a, a store strategy. <laughs> and, um, you know, I started a pie business when I was 13 and I, you know, would start making pies and I'd send my sisters out door to door to collect orders and bring samples to neighbors and then collect orders. And that lasted about three months. My dad shut that business down because I took over the kitchen and we'd have to eat out, eat meals out every night. And finally he's like, I'm paying your cost of goods. Let me explain what cost of goods means. Was your dad in kind of that business or no? (laughs) No, he was a nuclear physicist and he was in defense. And, you know, my parents both had PhDs and they were really hardworking, but very corporate folks. I mean, my dad was definitely the one who would say, you know, the ideal is you get a great job, you get a 401k, you go up through the management track, you're going to get promoted. And I think by the time I got to be about 15, I had, I was just not, I didn't fit in, you know, to mm-hmm. the family. And so my parents actually sent me to reform school for two years. And I did a lot of hard labor. We did, you know, trust falls and wilderness survival trips. And they kind of tried to, the school itself really had a focus of like how to get the kids to conform to rules and to be part of, part of the kind of the norm, you know? And so when I graduated from high school, you know, my father was coaching me on what 
corporate job I was going to get. And so I said, I'm not even sure I want to go to college. And so I took a year off. I mean, my parents were just, can you imagine, two PhDs? And people were not doing that back then. I mean, people are today, right? But people were like, wait, what? No, no She's got my it. we got to save her. No. And so dad said, okay, so you're not getting a penny from me. And if you decide you want to go to college, you call me and I'll help you financially. But so I waited tables for a year. And I'll never forget when I went into work one day, I worked at a place called Adele's and there was a uniform, you know, a black skirt, white shirt and a burgundy apron. And I actually liked waiting tables because it meant, you know, connecting with people. You were in a hurry, you were delivering food, you had a lot going on. And I just, I always had the busiest section mm-hmm. and I had made great tips, but my boss came in to me and he said, your skirt's too long. And if you don't hike your skirt up, you know, thigh level or above, you don't have a job tomorrow. Swear. Wow. Crazy. And I thought, where were you living? Healdsburg. And Healdsburg. California. Okay. Yeah. This tiny town, such a great place. And I never will, I'll never forget. I thought, my God, I'm being told that my livelihood is dependent upon me showing my legs. Mm-hmm. And there was this aha moment. I think the benefit I had was I had two parents who were well-educated, so I knew there was another side to this, that there could be an alternative for me, that if I chose to go to college, I could go up through a professional career track and I could shift my my future. But at that time, had I not had the exposure to two PhD parents and had been, you know, gone to work and all I, like, I try to imagine if my mom had been a waitress and my father had been a blue collar and you know, I was told to hike my skirt up or I wouldn't have a job the next day. I would hike my skirt up. But instead I told him, screw you. I didn't come back, you know, to work the next day. And I thought, shit, I better get myself into college or this is like probably not going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. This is where it goes. (laughs) Because he was not feel, dad was not fielding calls for, for money. Right. You know, he wasn't going to say, no problem, babe, I got you. I'll write you a check until you find your next gig. Like there was one option. So I went to the Fashion Institute of Design for my first two years um, of undergrad. I did my AA there in San Francisco. And I remember, you know, it was the first time I realized I was smart. Mm -hmm. I started to go to college and I, I thought, you know, I didn't think I was that smart. I, my, my impression of myself at that time, because I hadn't been successful in school was that I was, you know, maybe kind of not, didn't have the smart gene. Mm -hmm. And so it was my first time I remember in college thinking, huh, I think I could probably compete here and be pretty smart. And when I went to the, to the center that was helping place graduates from FIDM, the college counselor at the time, I was telling her, I think I want to go get a bachelor's degree. I think I want to transition and and I'm, I'm really, you know, interested in foreign policy. I'm going to apply. And she said, you don't need to do that. You just paid a fortune for an AA. You should go out and get in a management track at one of the retailers that are recruiting. Neiman's has an incredible management track there. And, you know, you could leave here and go get a great paying gig. So why, why do you don't need, you know, you're you at the prime of your it. life. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I'm do- making the right choice, but I just continued on the academic path because I kept challenging my beliefs that I wasn't very smart. And every time I got honors or Phi Beta Kappa or, you know, and I thought, my God, I'm competing against people who I really think are smart. And I think at that time I had imposter syndrome without even knowing what imposter syndrome was. Because I kept showing up at school going, I can't. I mean, I get great grades and I think, fuck, is this real? <laughs> yeah. That is so <laughs> did I earn hysterical. It? Yeah. That is so great. Yeah. And so how did you then how did you move from that then? So in it's really it's you know, I spent a year in Spain um between undergrad and graduate school. My parents were mortified. I had a calling to go sp- to Spain. I was actually, I pivoted. I was supposed to go to China and Hillary Clinton was there during that period of time as this kind of outspoken woman. And I remember China 
saying that they were going to hold off on issuing visas. And so when I went to get my visa, I had a single entry visa, which didn't sound like a good idea because I would be there for a year and I didn't want to go into China without a way to get out and for, um, sure. yeah. for the entire year. So I pivoted to Spain. I spent a year there. I came back. I worked on the Clinton-Gore campaign and I helped Michaela Aliotto and um, Virginia Strom Martin at the time, who was working to be a first assembly woman. And I was really passionate about politics. And uh, when I came back, I was in the Bay Area and I thought, you know, I should probably go to grad school because it seems like the right thing to do. And I don't I don't know where the, the political uh, realm will lead me, but I um during that time, I met a woman who was a forensic chemist, and she and I, she had a vision for um, changing the way nail polish was invented. Really, she, in she had a, a formula and a, a foresight for nail polish, and it actually came up with a conversation she was having, and saying, you know, nail polish doesn't smell good. And she and I talked about it, and, and then she said, you know, I think. I could reformulate this. And she did. She reformulated nail polish to be scented. Hmm. And at that time, I thought, you know, this is really an interesting opportunity. I wonder if anyone's ever done this. So I took some uh, money from my graduate school loans that they were offering. And then I went out and hired someone to do some patent research. And there was no patent on scented nail polish at the time. And so I basically launched with her this the first business in the, and help grow and drive, um, the idea around scent and nail polish using my student loans from Columbia to help underwrite the first business hmm. together. And, and that business ended up failing. We ended up closing it. We, you know, I ended up having to pay off my loans. The intellectual property ended up getting sold, but all the business assets got, you know, we folded after a couple of years, but it was really, the first time that I realized that there was a, a need for innovation, mm-hmm. B an appetite from the consumer for something similar, but different than what, what was out there. Hint water, right? Water is water. But when you tweak it and you make it special and unique, all of a sudden people can't get enough of it. Nail polish, you know, everybody has it and they know what the, the, the aspects of using nail polish are, but it doesn't smell great. And so being able to make it smell like chocolate or grass or peanut butter or roses. We sold a ton, like a lot. And it was was like, this is so much fun. And what happened to that business then? So our first client was JCPenney. I'll never forget. This is how I learned how to finance purchase orders because Mm -hmm. JCPenney gave us a purchase order for almost $400,000. And here I was living in this 10 by 11 studio on 91st and Broadway. Hmm. And I had my samples piled up, you know, all my scented nail polish, which was like, by the way, flammable, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's sitting. I had a phone that had two rings. One was like my personal ring, which was a one uh-huh. ring ring. And yeah. then when it rang twice, that meant it was like a buyer or a retailer because it had a second ring. So it would go ring, ring. And I'd say, you know, sentimental, oh can God. I help you? So I we built that business together. And she had her job by day at the Department of Justice literally on CSI sites, digging up dead bodies. And I was in grad school. And then, you know, I was only, I would take my classes Tuesday, Thursdays. I was in 15 units, but I would stack it from like seven in the morning to 10 at night. So I could get my classes so I could go meet retailers Monday, Wednesday, Friday, get on the airplane, fly out, fly back, and um, I did that for the first two years. And my first purchase order from JCPenney, which was like 400000 of course, like we couldn't fund that. So our vendor, we went to the vendor, we showed them the purchase order. They bought the glass for us because normally they wouldn't do that, but they bought the glass, the brushes, and the caps. They screened them. They filled them. They paid for the shippers, and then they gave us net 60 terms. And then I turned around to the purchase order, and I used my first ever factor. I didn't even know what a factor was, mm-hmm. right? Explain to people what a factor is for those that don't know what it is. So it's just like taking your house and collateralizing it. Mm-hmm. It's taking a purchase order and it coll- you collateralize the purchase order for a very high interest rate. It's usually 1% to 2% per month. And they will do a, a Dun & Bradstreet sensitivity run on the 
the actual purchase order to make sure that that the retailer is still liquid because you know that's an important consideration that's what they're basically underwriting as collateral and then they'll give you usually up to 70% of the purchase order in cash to purchase those things that you need and then they'll give you the balance of the 30% right when it ships hmm. and so for for us the liquidity of those that asset you know the thing that's hairy about all this that nobody ever wants to really think about is what if like you know manufacturing like mm-hmm. what if something goes wrong right mm-hmm. from the what if the glass is bad what if yeah. the brushes are wonky what if the you know i had a fedex truck full of product once run off the road and the entire container of goods like got destroyed. And I thought, oh, no problem. That's Costco's freight. I'm sure that'll be covered by Costco. But it's not. But it's not. Because even though it's their freight carrier pickup, they don't actually receive that asset until they get it into their DC. Lots of stuff can happen for sure. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. It's it's insane. It's insane. So what happened in the end with with that company then? So I got left with a bunch of debt. And I thought, crap. So it didn't do well? Like it, it got It did in. really well, but we just didn't, man- like when you start to think about the execution of a scent and nail polish at retail, what it really requires and what retail requires is, you know, is a human mm-hmm. standing there and saying, hey, listen, the sale- nail polish isn't just nail polish, it's scented, try it, mm-hmm. you know? And so with a retailer like a JCPenney, that did not work for us because people didn't understand what the difference was. And, but, you know, Spencer's gift that did work for us because we were doing baby diapers and grass and you can have this really gaudy sign that says nail polish, like baby diapers and put some testers out and everybody like snatched it up. Gets all excited about it. Yeah. Well, you know, I think you also point to something really interesting that I think a lot of people don't think about, which is that, you have to, if you have a new category within any industry, and I really do believe this applies to any industry, you have to be very careful where you show up, right? And is that consumer ready to receive? So I would guess at Spencer, for example, you want different, right? You're willing sure. to take a chance on it. I don't know if if JCPenney, I mean, it's interesting. When we first started, we had a very big opportunity with Walmart and uh, with a celebrity, actually, that was very interested and had great relationships and with Walmart. And we decided not to go into Walmart. Not be, and we're in Walmart today, and it's great, and Sam's Club, and everything's great. But I had started an unsweetened flavored water, and it was a brand new category. And I figured this out two months after launching our product. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and I said to the celebrity's agent, tell me what brands are developed inside of Walmart, because I can't think of any. But I want to mm-hmm. know what they are because I really just want, I wanted to believe, but I couldn't think about it. Mm. And I think that, that what you talked about, I mean, it's interesting. You can have a great product. Totally. But it, I mean, you've been through this, right? But it Completely. has to be in a place that has to, and, and I still believe this to this day. Again, when you get to be a big enough established brand, you know, where people have seen it show up at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or Spencer's or, or whatever, then maybe you can go into some of these stores. But there's, but it's it's such an important journey for the product. And I, I've talked to so many people about this, entrepreneurs launching brands over the years. And it just really depends on your category and it depends on if it's a new category anyway, but it sounds like a lot of what you experienced, but you learned a lot, 100%. right? Along the way. Yeah, and for sure. you survived and, yeah. and got through that. And, and so what was your next point after that? We did. Um, and I say we, because I pulled a lot of the people I had leaned on for scent and nail polish. What that gave me was a Rolodex of retailer contacts, as well as a network of vendor contacts. 
And really my biggest private label client at the Centennial Polish Company was Elizabeth Arden under their Sunflower fragrance. I developed a scented top coat that was Sunflower fragrance developed or based. And getting those contacts, learning the, the ways of the world, like getting to meet the CEO at the time of, of French fragrances, who then became the CFO of um, Elizabeth Arden. You know, one thing I recognized early, early on is your network is your net worth. Totally. And your reputation and who you are and who you show up as in the world is mission critical to maintain integrity and continue to even say the bad news first mm-hmm. if if there's bad news. And that's been with my retailers and that's been with my vendors because it's the trust that develops and that builds that gave me the momentum and the latitude to continue to build a business. And so even though scented nail polish didn't work, I went on to find a, the first ever spray on hosiery. It was an air, air silk and it was a hydrolyzed silk um, aerosol based spray on hosiery. And I heard about it and I got on an airplane. I was actually VP of sales of a hair care company at the time. So I had gone mm-hmm. to take a traditional job so that I could just pay my bills and then pay mm-hmm. off my debt. <laughs> <laughs> that's good loans. you you're so, scrappy and you yeah. knew what you had to do so i went in and i took a, a, a you know day gig and um and then i heard about this spray on hosiery and i thought what the hell and and i was trying to imagine it and you know someone had come back from japan and said oh my god you know it comes in a can you shake it it's hydrolyzed silk and it comes out in an aerosol and it looks like hosiery on your leg just like you can't tell the hmm. difference. So Amazing. of course I take sick time. I get on an airplane and go to Tokyo. I've never been to Japan. I'm like, I'm going to find this stuff. Right. So I end up tracking down the owner and the inventor of the spray on hosiery. Hmm. And I learned so much about the Japanese culture and just how they do business. But, you know, this man was an inventor in Japan. That's so very rare, right. An entrepreneurial inventor who just kind of comes up with things and so um, I went there and I ended up partnering with a very large billion dollar company called Senshukai, mm-hmm. who underwrote the inventory and became the distributor partner. And we went into a JV and then we got the distribution rights for that product in the United States, ended up getting it for Canada, Central and South America, as well as Mexico. And so for a couple of years, imported millions of cans. That was my first million dollar you know, income for me personally, I was 31, you know, I would start moving container loads of air silk and Mm. air stocking product. And I realized like, this is super interesting. I love innovation, but I also love the idea that, you know, retailers are hungry for something new and unique. And if, and if well communicated, they will be excited to participate. And that's what I, have built my career on is frankly seeing opportunities or innovation in the market in a particular space. And it's always been in consumer, obviously, but um, bringing that to retail first and then kind of creating a category that may not exist. And at that time it didn't exist spray on hosiery. So it ended up getting knocked off by Sally Hansen. And I mean, I don't like to say knocked off because the world comes up with ideas all at the same time. And sometimes, you know, zeitgeist, Things come to come into mar- the market, but we had quite the distribution at that time, almost 32,000 doors. And that was a couple of years of a great, you know, great business and a great run. Um, and then from there, I started my own business. So, I mean, that was my own business, but then I started becoming uh, my own company that would innovate and develop product after that, rather than find people who did it. You know, how did you find the courage at that point to just go and do it on your own? Do you remember that day when you just said, you know what, maybe I should just do this and set up my own factory and just kind of like do it? So courage is weird. I don't know if that's the right word because I think entrepreneurs typically I've found run on either blind ego and like completely out of bounds on what could happen. And they're just mm-hmm. kind of like these visionaries and, and, and they don't care like necessarily what the implications of, they just have to go fulfill the vision. 
or they run out of fear, right? And they're fear-based, meaning like I came from a household where I needed to create wealth for myself because I knew once I could, I would have the freedom of choice because mm -hmm. I, my childhood was not, it was tough, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, wealth always meant freedom. And I think the courage came from a place of saying, it can't be this bad. So I know I can make it better doing anything I'm going to do because like you've already done it to me. So I can, <laughs> I can't yeah. screw. And what's the worst that can happen, right? right? I mean, I ask myself all the time. So still do to this day, right? Yeah. It's totally true. And you, there was this part in your book that I have to tell you, I just resonated with. And if you don't mind, I, I want to no. pull it up because it really, there's this one sec section that you said, and I think as if there are entrepreneurs listening to this, I want them to really hear this because I laugh. And then at the same time, this is a pang inside of me because I believe that what you're saying here is so true. You said on chapter 13, believe in your product. And then you say, when can you be sure that your company is flying high and out of danger? Mm -hmm. Never. Yeah. It's right? true. It, it is true. And you're, and that is what you sign up for. Look right? at, look at Kodak, right? Uh -huh. Look at, I mean, we could go down a list of the need to reinvent and there's no place in which you're scot-free. Mm -hmm. And I think that where the courage to get up every day and just put one foot in front of the other, the thing that keeps me excited about what we do is the people that I get to work with. And you love what you're doing. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a sobriety to knowing that my I'm maybe three decisions away from the, the things careening off to the left or to the right, potentially, mm -hmm. right? And that at least that's how I interpret it or it feels. And then I look at, you know, even just what's happened in the world with COVID in the last, you know, 12 months and what's happened to our world. When I sit back and think about the forecast that I built in 2018, or 2019 going into 2020, I was like, I'm decade in this, man. I, yeah. I could, here's my You've forecast. Like, yeah. here you go, bank. Like, here you go, investor. Here you go, everyone. And, you know, then you're nine weeks into the quarter and you hear about a hotspot and you're thinking, is this happening? Like, is, is there a problem? And there is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And your entire world shifts. So totally. I think it's kind of what we sign up for as humans. Yeah. It's something else that I, I've really grown to think more and more about, and particularly through me talking about my book, actually, I've, I've picked up a lot of, you know, in addition to writing a book, but so much more that I've realized about myself. And when I left my last job at AOL, I was saying things like, oh, I was bored, I was, you know, ready to move on, right? There were there were all these things. I had built this great business. I had gone through a hockey stick. It was, I had young kids at home. I thought, you know what, I'm just not into it anymore. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm I'm ready, right? But then when I stumbled upon my own problem that I had around diet soda, and I knew I was supposed to be drinking water, but I wasn't doing it. Then I swapped it out, you know, made this shift from not drinking diet soda to drinking plain water, was bored with water, and then realized that that, that that was the solution to the problem. Then I just assumed I just had missed it on the shelf. I even thought that I was going to the wrong stores. I right. like drove all over San Francisco where I lived and um, looked on the East Coast, everything, and it wasn't there. And so, but it's funny because I would tell my friends in tech, because my whole circle was in tech at that time, that I'm you know, really curious about this. And they were like, okay, so anyway, so Yahoo wants you to come and, and Google and everything. And I was like, wait, come back to this whole thing around diet soda and how I've had this realization. And I didn't know, right. like talk about you know, being three steps away from you know, hanging off of a cliff. I felt like I was hanging off a cliff, but every morning I woke up with this curiosity. And so I go back now to where I was when I was leaving tech. 
I wasn't learning anymore. And I mm-hmm. think it's something that so many people miss as they grow in the corporate ladder or they get older, right? They're just not learning. And people call it not interested, bored, whatever. But I think that that is what entrepreneurism brings to so many people that you, you had no idea what you were doing most of the time when you entered. No. And it was a little scary. And you put yourself into situations, right, where you were yeah. uncomfortable, right? Oh, but yeah. it clearly wasn't not exciting, right? I, yeah. mean, you were, I mean, it's just some days were not so good, right? right. And some days were successful. But, you, but I, I believe just by hearing your story that you can't say that you weren't learning. Oh my gosh, still. I mean, yeah. still. I, I'm raising capital. I, I brought an investment partner, private equity partner into the business in uh, March of 2019. Oh, wow. So we were already nine and a half or 10 years old at that point. Mm-hmm. And even that pl- process of you know, putting together a sim, sitting down and pitching your business, explaining who you are and why you believe that the business has this next iterative step and, you know, having someone write a multi-million dollar check to participate and be part of that process with you. And then what it means to now have a financial partner, an mm-hmm. institutional partner who, by the way, has LPs that invest in them that they then deploy capital under. Yeah. And they have a whole series of requirements. So learning that, understanding what the cap table implications are, what it means to run a formal board meeting. Mm-hmm. I've been so fortunate that um, Christy Hefner has been my mentor. She's chairman of the board of Hatch Beauty and has been for about seven years. So she's the person who taught me how to write, run a, a formal, awesome. appropriate board meeting. I mean, are you? I just thought, I can't believe I, this is better than Harvard MBA. Yeah, like I get to sit and listen to her. Are you part of C200 as well? I am. Yeah, I am too. But I didn't realize that you were. That's another great women's organization. And and Christy's one of the, she's a co-founder of it. So She's amazing. Yeah, she's, uh, I haven't actually met her, but I've heard amazing things about her. That is so cool. So I love how you took control of your own destiny and you're continuing to learn and running an amazing, amazing company. And you're just I mean, you're such an inspiration and you've just got so many ideas here um, that that I think are, are solutions and ideas that really will be super helpful for people to hear. So what would you say is 2021 for you? Like, how are you thinking about 2021 and, and just for you personally, for Tracy? So- You know, I had three amazing kids and I'm so fortunate because I have, you have to figure out how to squeeze this fertility thing in, by the Mm -hmm. way, you know, I love the OB meeting that I had at 34 when he said, oh, you're going to have kids. And I said, of course. And he's like, well, you're not married. And how are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I have plenty of time. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. Let me tell you the math on how ovaries work and how ovulation is. And assuming you are at 100% fertility, you might be able to be okay, but you still don't have a partner. And I thought, holy smokes, like- How is that gonna, yeah, yeah. all work. Yeah, so I've been so grateful to have had the opportunity to be a mom because I think if you have had a tough childhood, the idea of creating family for me and having the- the, the nurturing mom aspects of myself become my human part of my day to day. And it's something that I feel is part of my legacy. And, you know, the idea of saying, I'm not going to perpetuate this cycle, I'm going to do this differently. And just because I had this experience doesn't mean that the next iteration of family has to. And, you know, that was courage, right? Yeah, I think having I children in feeling like, what if I screw this up? I consider really the courageous part, but how old are they now? Um, they're nine, 11 and 14. Oh my God. That's yeah. so amazing. So yeah. you're raising them on your own. Yes, I am. I mean, they have, their you. dad is really involved and he has them part-time. I have them part-time and that relationship is really good. And that's beautiful because I think it does take a village to raise children and whatever that village looks like, you know, two men, two women, 
family, extended family, however that needs to look. It's, it's like the posse that makes it work. Yeah. But that, that has been the biggest focus for me for 21. And I would say also for the last two and a half years, I've been on a deep, I would say, um, wellness journey, mind, body, um, heart and head coherence, thinking about ways to expand my human nature, my humanness in this body that I've been given for as long as I get to use it. I love it. And figuring out how to make an impact and help encourage women, especially who may think, oh, I can't do this, or it's not for me, or I'm not smart enough, or I came from a broken home, or I don't have the resources, or, you know, that actually there is a hundred percent of an opportunity to make a shift and do exactly what it is you want to do. And it's actually not overnight. It takes way longer than you think it's going to. Yeah. Yeah. Always. <laughs> right. It's just, uh, I've had many people on that have said the exact same thing. So it's, it is 1000% true. So where do people find you? Um, they can find me at Tracy Holland Mindset or at Potential 2, the number two powerhouse. And that is the best way to reach me. And you know, I think um, as I've gone and I got to go through a YPO spiritual experience in Oman last year, I did it 11 days and oh, it was fun. their first, you know, kind of spiritual, spiritually focused retreat with YPOers. And that it was, was life changing. I mean, yeah. on every level. I hope those will start up again. That sounds amazing. Oh my gosh. So great. I think we're going to do Bali. I think you, if you can come, you should. Dave Asper yeah, I came would last to. time. He was, it was so much fun. There were so many amazing people there. I, I love it. So I, I want to close it up and uh, stay tuned. But if, if you loved this uh, episode, which I did very, very much, thank you so much, Tracy, for uh, being on and definitely give uh, five stars and uh, we'll see you here every Monday and Wednesday, everybody. Thanks so much. Amazing. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Kara Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.